0: Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Ephesians. We are currently in chapter 2 at verse 19. Hi, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today. Let's begin reading, why don't we, in verse 19 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes this. Well then, we find ourselves in the last section, the last paragraph, if you want to call it that, in uh, chapter 2. As we have been following this grid or this uh, framework that we've laid out uh, ahead of time, uh, this uh, this particular chapter talks about our position in Christ as a temple. That's chapter 2. Chapter 1, primarily, is uh, our position in Christ as a body. And uh, then chapter three is our position in Christ as a mystery. And uh, we'll get to that uh, later uh, later on in uh, this series. But in the meantime, uh, as a temple, and we finally get to the, the paragraph that talks about us and identifies us as a temple, and um, Because the first 10 verses of chapter 2 talks about our condition in Christ has been radically changed. And uh, that uh, radical change is uh, signified by the fact that uh, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which, which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So that is a transforming and internal work of God that transforms uh, us into new creatures because now we were once dead, that is, as far as our spirit is concerned. Our own earthly spirit, our spirit as a, as human beings uh, was dead. That meant uh, that our spirit was cut off from the holy God because of our sin. And yet because of the work of God in his son, he has now cleansed us. He has now forgiven us, but he has also now installed us into a new condition, and that is we are now spiritually alive. We are connected in a way in which uh, we were never connected before to a holy God, and that is our new relation then in verses 11 through um. Twenty-two of chapter two. Now we've talked about the fact that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, and of course, if you were uh, uh, looking at uh, verses eleven through thirteen, that that refers to the fact that that. Uh, 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 primarily to two main culture groups or ethnic groups of the uh, makeup of the churches of the first century, and that was the Gentiles as well as the Jewish believers in Yeshua, the Messiah, and because these two very different and divergent cultures are now being blended together in congregations all over the Roman Empire, and uh, then uh, this has to be addressed because this This is going to lead to a lot of social um, uh, situations that are going to be very complex and maybe offensive. And uh, and yet uh, Paul says that that is part of our new relation. The blood of Christ has brought us both both culture groups uh, to the foot of the cross because we are both dependent upon the same thing, the same person uh, that uh, that has died in order to be our substitute to pay for our sin. And since we hold that in common, then we then Paul wants us to know that that is a transforming part of the dynamic that is now at work among both Gentiles and Jewish believers. And um, that's what he gets to. And then we are one body through the cross. That means we are no longer um, uh, two people groups. We are one new man, according to... uh, to uh, what he says in verses 14 through 18. He abolished in his flesh, that's Christ, uh, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is what part of the, uh, the work of Christ has done for us. He has brought us both both ethnic groups, at least the two main ethnic groups, and and of course others will follow, and that's kind of the point that we apply today, and that is there should be no bias or prejudice uh, among believers if they are true believers gathered together in a congregation. Then uh, then we are one new man. Why? Because his blood has cleansed us all by the same work of God in His Son and. We are made by the Spirit of God into one new body, one new corporate entity, one one new organism, if you want to call it that, and uh, that's what the Spirit of God has done for us. He's brought us into this dynamic work with each other. This is not a disconnected work this is a connected thing. This is a relationship, not only that we have with the cross, not only that we have with the, with the blood of Christ that was shed for us, but we have with each other because we share the same, uh, thing. And, uh, we share the same person that we are relying upon. And sometimes we forget that. And, uh, And we want to make a big deal out of our differences instead of looking to the blood of Christ and the cross as the place where he has made us not only forgiven, he's made us new people. He's made us alive in Christ. He has purchased us and brought us together into uh, uh, congregations or gatherings of believers in various cities, in this case, in the uh, first uh, um, New Testament. We may have several congregations in the same city in our culture today. And then the the last paragraph, which I read earlier, verses 19 through 22, uh, talks about the fact that we are being built together in the Spirit. So this is an ongoing work. This isn't just a static thing. This is a dynamic thing. This isn't just something, something that uh, labels us with a with a new title. um, And so that our position in Christ isn't just a, a location, even though it includes a location, it is our identity. And our identity includes this dynamic work of God that doesn't stop. It isn't plateaued at any one point, it continues on and it is continuous uh, as as we continue on uh, together. And so that's the reason why he begins then in verse 19, especially when it comes to the Gentile believers, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And that means we're no longer tourists in, in this thing called Christianity. We're not just uh, welcome guests. Uh, we're not just immigrants uh, into this thing. We have been brought into it by the work of God through the spirit of God. And because of that, uh, we are not strangers and aliens. We are of equal footing. And that's the point that uh, Paul wants to get across here in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, that we have this this shared relationship with God through Christ and this shared relationship with each other because of what he has done. And he makes this uh, comparison by saying, that uh, we are fellow citizens, we belong here. Uh, every believer in Jesus belongs with Jesus and belongs with each other who also believes in Jesus. It says we're fellow citizens with the saints. Now, it's curious to me that if you did look up the word saint in an in an English dictionary, and in my case, I, I am going to quote from the American Heritage Dictionary, the fourth edition, where it says this about... The the definition of saint and it says um, it says this number one a person officially recognized especially by canonization as being entitled to public veneration and capable of interceding for people on earth. That was part A of number one. And then part B of number one, we have this uh, part. It says the definition is a person who has died and gone to heaven. And then part C, a uh, saint, a member of any of various religious groups, especially of, um, of certain groups that use the name saint. And then uh, number two, an extremely virtuous person uh, to name, recognize, or venerate a saint to canonize. And so all of those definitions, what's fascinating is if you actually look at the way the New Testament uses that word, and especially here in the book of Ephesians, we discover that that uh, that definition in the dictionary has, uh, has no relationship to the biblical use of the word, because Paul uses the term saint to refer to living people. They have had no official canonization as such. They are not to be venerated, but then again, they are not to be denigrated either. They are believers in Jesus. That's what makes them holy. They are holy because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of each individual believer. That's what makes you holy, you see, and so we are devoted or we are connected or we are consecrated to his purposes and not our own. That's another thing that makes us holy. It, it doesn't mean that we are perfect in any, any sort of uh, uh, absolute way. Uh, it doesn't mean we are without fault in terms of our behavior or some of our attitudes, but it does mean that we are members of Christ and he is in us. That makes us different. That makes us dedicated, I remember a, um, An old camera I I had when I when I originally bought it uh, back in the early seventies. I also bought a flash uh, that came with it, an electrified uh, flash, and uh, instead of just those individual bulbs. And I remember that was important for me to buy a flash attachment that was dedicated to that camera, so that the software inside this camera. Uh, would would connect with that flash in such a way as to make it uh, dedicated to each other, and that's boy that's the uh, uh, the way in which we are connected to Christ. We are dedicated to Him, not in the sense that we've uh, we've made some sort of great landish uh, promises about being being holy or being spiritual or or all sorts of conduct uh, behavior kind of uh, changing promises, but it has to do with who we are in Christ. It is part of our identity, and that makes us a saint. That makes us holy ones. That's what the original word is, not because we are flawless, but because he has made us there, and he has put us there, and he is transforming us, uh, and because of that, we are called saints. And uh, this is not something we earn or deserve or somehow um get accredited by a committee, this is something that uh, the Bible calls us, and we are fellow citizens with the saints, it says, and are of God's household. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and and the boast of our firm uh, hope, that is, our hope firm in the end. So that is our position. We are a part of his household. And so we're going to get back to this right after this break. Welcome back. So you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And we already quoted from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, uh, that means that if we uh, have our faith in Christ, then uh, we are members of his family. God is our father, and we are part of his household. This isn't just a membership in in some social club. This is a part of God's household. We become brothers and sisters, and he becomes our father. We can call him father because we are a part of his family. We are a part of his household. And uh, so Paul goes on with that uh, with that metaphor, that same metaphor. He continues in verse 20 by saying, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets so we're a part of this home that is uh, that Paul refers to as a house with a foundation and uh, and that the, the uh, foundation uh, is is built once in a uh, home construction, and that means the foundation is not repeated. It is it is laid once, and it continues to do its work upon the rest of the structure because it was laid well. It was laid down well. It was built well, and uh, it was accurate, and because of that, then the rest of the structure gains its strength, gains its power, and gains its uh, its usability and uh, its purposes. And so, uh, so it, it, you don't have to repeat the foundation uh, at various points throughout the construction process, it is valuable because it is there at all. And it's it's there because of what God has done in establishing the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And uh, that is the foundation, and we don't need to look around for another foundation or other members of the foundation that weren't already there in the New Testament. Uh, we find that, uh, of course, there were the original 12 and uh one of those the original 12 was judas iscariot the one who betrayed jesus um so he disqualified himself by that but um but there are uh 11 named apostles uh, that uh still are there uh and that is simon peter andrew which was peter's brother james the son of zebedee and john James's brother. There was also Philip and Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel. There was Thomas, and then there was Matthew, the tax collector. There was, there was another James, who was the uh, son of Alphaeus. He's also called James the Less in certain uh, uh, categories. Uh, he's, and then there was another Judas. Uh, he was also named Lebeus as well as Thaddeus, he was uh, the son of another James, but he was still called Judas. Uh, then there was Simon, who was known as a zealot or the Canaanite in one place. And, and then later in Acts chapter, uh, uh, that is uh, Acts chapter one, uh, we find a fellow by the name of Matthias. Now, we don't know that much about him. Of course, we don't know that much about uh, some of the other apostles. Some of them become, became very, very famous and were familiar with them. But uh, uh, being being uh, non-famous doesn't eliminate you from being a true apostle, and I have to believe that uh, according to Acts chapter 1, this fellow by the name of Matthias actually was installed as an apostle. And um, then, of course, we have according to Acts chapter 9, that Saul of Tarsus was uh, also installed directly by Christ. This was Christ's work. This wasn't a vote by the other 11 or the other 12. This was a work that Christ did by confronting Paul directly and calling him specifically to this role as apostle. Now, some people have a problem because uh, if you've been paying attention, that would have made a, a total of uh 13, and yet uh, what's fascinating is that's exactly what you find in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. There, there, were, there were, of course, what we call the 12 tribes of Israel, but, uh, but technically there were 13 because Joseph had two sons, and those two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and uh, Ephraim, they were both accredited as having equal shares as the rest of the tribes of Israel. So uh, the one that didn't get a share of the, uh, of the inheritance in the sense of the land was Levi, but there were still in essence, uh, there were 12 tribes plus one. And so it doesn't bother me at all to talk about 12 apostles plus one. And uh, then there were the prophets in the new Testament and, and there were some named ones that we know of specifically. And in, Coincidentally, there were seven of them that were named. Agabus is one in Acts chapter 11, and then there was also in Acts chapter 15, uh, Judas Barsabbas, and then there was Silas, and he was called a prophet. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we have these other names, Barnabas, which is not to be confused with uh, Barsabbas, uh, Judas Barsabbas uh, in the other passage. But There was Barnabas, and then there was Simeon, uh, called Niger in another place, and Lucius of Cyrene, and then there was a fellow by the name of Manian. And uh, just the fact that uh, we don't know these people by name, or we're not familiar with them, doesn't diminish their role that they played in establishing the foundation. And uh, there were several unnamed in uh, that were just called prophets, but we don't know their names. And uh, that was uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 27. There were some prophets from Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 21, verse nine, there were four virgin daughters of Philip and uh, they are called prophetesses. And uh, and yet we don't know their names either uh, but they evidently played some sort of a role that was prophetic not in the sense so much that they were predicting the future that's what we uh, normally associate with the with the role of an apostle or the office of a, of that is uh, the uh, role of a prophet or the uh, office of prophet uh, that they predicted the future but that uh, that is only one aspect it as it actually had to do with proclaiming the truth as it applied to to the culture of the day and that's what the role of an apo- of, uh, not just an apostle but of a prophet was. So these two um, sets of people, the apostles and prophets are called the foundation of this building that God is building. And uh, so that's important for us to know. But look at what else is important about this foundation, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Anybody or any organization that that does not recognize that Jesus is your cornerstone is going to be a weak uh, organization, is going to be a weak denomination or a weak church or a weak congregation the Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone now the cornerstone in in that particular culture was more than just a a decorative, uh, decorative uh, kind of uh, time capsule at the corner of the building that's that's kind of what we know of as a cornerstone. It, it doesn't really hold up the building and it isn't necessarily, um, a function of the structure itself. And in fact, many times, uh, they, they chip out the cornerstone and find out what kind of, uh, relics are inside of it, uh, and they leave the building standing. And, uh, uh that, that, it has its own ceremonies in certain places but but what paul is talking about here the cornerstone of, of that particular architecture of that day had to do with the fact that that it established the foundation and it, it in fact uh, uh, established the square of the building, it also established the plumb of the building. That means both aspects. If they were off, if they were out of kilter, uh, if they were somehow not level or not plumb, then the rest of the structure could be uh, uh, could be uh, dangerous, uh, if not uh, just weak and uh ineffective and not be able to be used as as what it was built for if the cornerstone was not laid properly and if it wasn't uh, uh, accurate in the way that it was laid down but here it says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone he is our um, he is our cornerstone in our foundation and so uh that makes it secure that makes it true that makes it true in terms of the direction that we're going in terms of the 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 um, uh, the security or the assurance that we have um, the stability that we have. Uh, Psalm 118 is is the place where uh, Jesus actually quoted it in uh, Mark chapter 12, but Psalm 118 verses 22 through 23 says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And uh, in fact, Peter himself uh, uses this same metaphor and this same analogy, uh, you might say, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 4 and 5, and again in verse 10, it says, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up. But now you are the people of God. In verse ten, it says, "and uh, and so that was Peter's words to the to the Gentile believers that we are stones, not only laid down upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as being the chief cornerstone. That was once rejected, and now is a part of our life, and uh, that means that." Uh, That we now have a future, we have a purpose. And not only is it an architectural kind of uh, metaphor here, but it is also a, a biological thing. Because look at this, it says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. So this is a life thing. This is an organism that is growing. This isn't just dead stones. These are living stones. Even Peter understood that. This is a growing structure. This isn't just static, and it's not just cold and hard. It means that it's it's growing. It has life in it, and uh, in whom the whole building, that's, that's who we are. He said earlier in this book of Ephesians in chapter 1, Verse 22, it says, and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we are a body, but we're also a structure. We we have a certain organism that we are a part of, and it's a spiritual organism. So uh, uh, it says then, that uh, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. This is God's work. We are being fitted together. That means closely joined. This is a work of God's spirit to cause us to be closely joined. And that means the believers are who are in Christ are joined to each other in a dynamic fashion by the Spirit of God. This isn't just membership uh, that we uh, that we sit in a pew. This is not just putting our name on a list. This is a part of an organism that Jesus himself is building by the power of the Holy Spirit by making us a part of each other. We are a holy temple, and we are a growing Temple, according to uh, verse twenty-one, and we are being built together into a dwelling of God. This is a God thing. This isn't our uh, invention. This is God's work. And uh, and again, First Peter chapter two, verses four and five, it says, "And coming to Him as to a living stone, uh, which." has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of god you also as living stones are being built up we are being built up god isn't finished with us yet he has placed us here for a purpose we he has placed us in connection to himself as well as his in connection to each other in such a fashion as to spiritually grow together Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 says, "For we are the temple of the living God." First Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, the Holy Spirit is has been uh, called our seal in chapter one of Ephesians, verse 13. He's been called God's Pledge in chapter one, verse 14 of Ephesians. And we have access through the Spirit of God and what Christ has purchased in Ephesians chapter two, verse 18. And now we are a growing knit together temple because of the Spirit's work in us that God has designated for him to accomplish in us and through us together. Father, thank you that you're doing a work. Thank you, Father, that you are building a work inside of us and with each other according to your plan and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.